0: And welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies and desectarianisation podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Catherine Harvey. Catherine, who goes by the name of Kitty, is an adjunct assistant professor in the security studies programme at Georgetown University. And today she's here to talk about her wonderful new book, published by Hearst in the UK and OUP Overseas. The book is titled A Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, The Saudi Struggle for Iraq, and it focuses on the post-2003 period. It's wonderful. I've read it. It's absolutely fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to both speaking to Kitty and for you all to getting a chance to read it in the coming weeks. So, Kitty, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and really excited that the book is coming out.
0: You should be. It's it's a wonderful book, and it fills a really... Um, A really big gap in in the literature so I was I was absolutely delighted when I saw that it was it was coming out and and I was able to to read an advanced copy of it so um congratulations first of all and um I should start just as I normally do really by by asking you what what got you interested in in the Middle East and the politics of the region
1: yeah um so as when, when I tell people these days that oh I have this book coming out and it's about relations between Iraq and Saudi Arabia after 2003 people frequently um, you know the, the first question here in the United States that people ask is oh how did you get into that <laughs> and I always say it was a journey um and so what got me interested in the Middle East in the first place um, because I have no family ties to the region or um, or anything um, but kind of Funnily enough, um, back when I was a kid, back when I was in high school, I was always good at foreign languages. Um, And in high school, I studied both French and Spanish. And in my first year at university, I continued studying French and Spanish. Um, And then going into my second year um, at university, I was kind of like, you know, I should give myself, I I should see like what I'm really made of and try a non-Western language. (laughs) Um, And this was actually before September 11th um and um at, a, at which at a period at least in the united states arabic really was not studied very often at all
0: yeah um, of course
1: but um at college i had a friend there was one arabic class each year and i had a friend who had taken this arabic class and he loved it and he said that the, there was this wonderful professor who was originally from lebanon um and you know and i was like you know what i'm going to try arabic <laughs> and this was september 2000 so again it was um, you know, it was before sort of everything then changed. Um, but so I started taking Arabic in September, 2000, and I just fell in love with the language. I just loved it. Um, and I studied history in college. Um, and, um, uh, actually my Arabic, the Arabic teacher who was wonderful. I remember him saying on the very first day of class that Arabic was a really hard language. And if you wanted to, um, really, um, tackle it, you had to commit to it for life. Um <laughs> which was <is> true. Yeah. <laughs> um, <but laughs> it it has become a lifelong commitment. Um, and uh, but it was kind of just really enjoying that that then got me into studying Middle Eastern history. Um uh, and then it kind of took off from there. Um and then I should say that um while I was still in college, having sort of dis- discovered, developed this sort of deep interest in the region um and sort of love for the language um, i uh then in my summer before my last year of university i applied to be a state department um intern the internship is a big state department in, uh, internship program and um there are many state department interns in washington dc which is where i'm currently located and then also interns at all sorts of various embassies and consulates overseas um, and um, in the summer of 2002, um, I was selected to be a State, Dep- a State Department intern in, of all places, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was another you know, step along this journey. Um, and and it, it was just fascinating. So I spent the summer of 2002 in Saudi Arabia and I was sort of just hooked. It was just a fascinating place. Um, and you know from there on out, I just kind of wanted to learn more. Um, and I should say that after college, um, I actually joined the military. Um, I served in the uh, United States Navy um, for five years, uh, and I served. I served on a ship. I served in Europe, but I also served in the Middle East. So I was on the ground in Bahrain um, uh, for for a period, um, and then got out and did, did a master's degree, and then ultimately um, went on to do the PhD, uh, the PhD in Middle Eastern Studies at King's College London.
0: Amazing! So many questions. So many yeah. <laughs> coming up from there. It
1: is definitely a journey.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I've got to ask you: of all the the non-West, the non-European languages that you could have studied, right, why Arabic? Other than the the class that your your friend took?
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's funny, um, and uh, I've oftentimes thought of that because, in retrospect, you know, something like Chinese would have been, you know, even at the time was, you know, much more studied. Um you know I think in a way I've sort of um gravitated to um unusual topics if you will um I sort of maybe have a contrarian streak to me um and you know I kind of like the fact that nobody that at least very few people studied Arabic um I sort of like the fact that it was sort of this small group of people you know and what made it at that time pretty exciting was that it was a bunch of quirky people <laughs> um and you and you only really were there because you wanted to to be there, you know it was a very self selecting few um and um but yeah, I kind of liked the fact that it that it was that it was different and that it was um not very uh, that it was unusual and I've got to say that actually um sort of the same thing with my joining the military after university um I have to say that I come from a family um uh, sort of a Navy family, my dad served in the Navy, my grandfather served in the Navy, um, though uh, many, many, many years before I was born. So um, right. okay. uh, So this was not unusual for my family, um, but sort of the environment I grew up in, um, I grew up in uh, New York City, um, where I, I grew up, you know, quite frankly, in the private school system in New York City where there were not people joining the military. Um, and then I went off to Yale, which is where I did my undergraduate studies. Um, and at that time, there were not a whole lot of Yalies going off and joining the military. Um, and in a way, I kind of liked I kind of joked after after the fact um, that in joining the Navy, um I was doing sort of the most non-conformist thing that I could, <laughs> even though, ironically, I joined probably the most conformist organization that exists.
0: <laughs> right, okay.
1: Um, that said, I was always very proud of my service.
0: Sure, of course. So is that, that slight contrarian streak evident in your decision to go into a PhD, or is that, is that more down to intellectual curiosity about part of the world and your own sort of life history that you'd experienced?
1: You know, I do think that the, um, so the the PhD really developed, it was sort of, you know, because it hadn't, I, I, did the P, I came to the PhD when I was a little bit older, um, certainly not old, I like to think, but um, hmm. I was 32, I suppose, when I started it, um, and um, the PhD was really um, a response to the Arab Spring um, even though the Arab Spring, you know, wasn't what I studied and wasn't this really the subject of my research as it developed. Um, but, you know, the Arab Spring really made clear that, um, you know, the the region, the Middle East is, um, excuse me, is undergoing these tectonic shifts. And I want to understand that on a deeper level. Um, but I will say that, um with my book, you, you pointed out that, you know, there was sort of this glaring gap um, and it was it was a journey how I got to this subject matter because I didn't start out the PhD saying, oh, I'm gonna study relations between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Um, but I will say that um, I do sort of have a contrarian streak and, you know, in kind of reading about Iraq, um, you know, reading the secondary literature, the published works on Iraq, you know, it did kind of become clear to me as I dug deeper into my own research that there's a lot more to the story here that hasn't been, um, you know, it, there's a lot more to the story. There's a lot more context. Um, the, uh, you know, with regard to, you know, just as an example, um, Nuri Al-Maliki, who's a sort of primary character, if you will, um, in my book, um, you know, he 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 is not on many people's favorite people list. Uh, yeah. um, I, <laughs> I can tell you that um, Maliki is uh, not necessarily, you know, he, he's not people, he's not high on people's lists here in DC. Um, and I by no means consider myself or want to be a, a, a Nouriel Maliki apologist. It's not my goal to defend him. Um, but, um, you know, I, in the course of my research, and it became pretty clear at the outset of my research, there's a lot more going on to the story that accounts for why in part at least for why Maliki was doing what Maliki was doing. Maliki was in a really um, difficult situation. Um, and, um, and you can't really understand what he was doing without understanding that situation, which hasn't really been explored um, previously in the literature, um, or at least the situation that he was in with Saudi Arabia um and so in in a, in a way the contrarian streak definitely did come out
0: um with this book <laughs> sure so what was the i mean let's let's get on to the book in in more detail it obviously is stemming from the phd so there's a there's a an interesting relationship there but let's talk about the book itself Wait, what was the what was the starting point here um mm-hmm. was it a a, a book/thesis that that began wanting to look at iraq was it looking at saudi foreign policy was it looking at post-2003 you mentioned post-arab uprisings but what was your what was your way in before talk about the argument itself
1: yeah because um in those early years of the phd it really sort of changed considerably or sort of morphed um but you know at the at the outset of the um phd um I was really, I was interested in the Saudi-Iran relationship. You know, I'm still interested, of course, in the Saudi-Iran relationship. Um, And I should say, not just at that time, it wasn't just Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, I was interested in sort of um, the Sunni Arab regimes and Iran. You know, what were the, um, and this was coming from sort of a very American mindset at the time, you know, what were the Sunni Arab regimes doing? You know, so if, if Iran had been empowered by the 2003 invasion, um you know what were the um Sunni Arab regimes doing after 2003 um to counter Iran's growing influence in the region um and I think that I was interested actually particularly interested in the years after 2003 you know kind of the 2003 to the, the pre-arab spring period because that's the period that I had served in the Navy in in the region and I should say I never actually served in, the, in Iraq so I didn't really at that time know much about Iraq to to be fair. Um I had spent a little bit of time in Lebanon. Um, and um and you know in in the early, very early stage of um, the PhD, um I was gonna so it was really going to be driven by kind of Sunni Arab regimes in Iran and I was going to have sort of case studies. I mean, there's gonna be a case study on Iraq and a case study on Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And that's what sort of drove my original research, um, and because I'm sort of empirically minded, um, I sort of um, at the out at the outset of my research, I was going through thousands. I mean, really, just a massive amount of newspaper articles, media sources um, from the time period uh, from the region. Um, and, um, and I was kind of looking just in very granular detail at like what was going on in Iraq. Um, and um, and I am sort of again, at the outset at at this early stage, I was under the impression, you know, sort of the prevailing um view that post 2003 um you know, the Shia of Iraq had been empowered, and that the the um, the the iraqi leaders who who had. Come into power, we're sort of we're naturally we're naturally aligned with Iran. That was sort of my starting assumption, mm-hmm. um, and um, and with regard to the kind of going through this all this granular detail, it was sort of what I found very surprising and also at the time very confusing was that by sort of 2000, 2007, thousand seven um, two thousand eight two thousand nine particularly in two thousand seven and two thousand eight. There was a range of Iraqi leaders, um, Shia leaders, but also Sunni leaders, Kurdish leaders, really the full range um, of Iraqi leaders, um, were all saying things in the press, saying, we want better relations with the Arab world, Um, we want better relations with with the Arab world, and we particularly want better relationship relations with Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is our gateway back into the Arab world. Hmm. Um, Yeah, and that was really... Surprising to me. It kind of didn't fit with my original assumptions. Um, And meanwhile, you know, I knew that Saudi Arabia had been very again, the the Saudi leadership um, had been very wary of what happened in Iraq. Um, But so the the Iraqis were reaching out to them and the Saudis didn't do anything to reciprocate. The Saudis were really nowhere to be found. And it was very, again, going through this period in sort of granular detail. what was also really interesting is that um, in the early years after 2003, the other Arab Sunni states, you know, Sunni leaders, um, uh, Sunni regimes, um, you know, also seemed very wary of this new Iraq. Um, but by 2008, um, there was a real shift from the other Arab states. Um, and in the, particularly in the summer of 2008, um, there were a whole bunch of leaders from other Arab states that all of a sudden for the first time, or for the first time since 2003, came to Iraq um, and started to really engage in very meaningful and very public ways. Um, and even sort of admitting, um, oh, we've been absent. <laughs> you know, we've been the ones that have been absent. Mm. You've been reaching out to us. Um, And you've sort of, you know, you, Iraq, have suffered by the fact that we've been absent. So there was this real shift on the part of other Arab states by 2008. Um, And meanwhile, Saudi Arabia still was doing nothing to reciprocate this Iraqi outreach. Um, And so um, at this point, I was all I was extremely confused (laughs) because it um, because what I was finding in the empirical data didn't fit my assumptions. Um, And it occurred to me one day, sort of in a, um, you know, I kind of had a a moment of clarity. And it occurred to me that I was sort of asking the wrong question. Um, You know, instead of asking, okay, what was Saudi Arabia doing to counter Iranian influence in Iraq? A better question was how did Saudi Arabia respond to this monumental shift in Iraq? How did Saudi Arabia respond to the ascendance of the Iraqi Shia um, after 2003. Um, And so that became the new direction for the book. Um, And the core of the book is really um, sort of this effort made um, by Iraqis, um, but also to reach out to Saudi Arabia, um, but also very much an effort made by the United States to put pressure on the Saudis to engage with Iraq. um, None of which, Uh, influence, none of which persuaded uh, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, who I argue is the ultimate decision maker at this period, to to change course. He was was dead set on not engaging with Iraq. Um, And so that's sort of the fundamental question that's explored is um, why was he so dead set against not engaging with Iraq? And what was the influence of that? What was the impact of that on Iraq itself?
0: I think that's where there's so much real merit in, in what you're doing in the book, Kitty, in the sense that that there's there's all of this talk about the Saudis and the Iranians engaging in this increasingly vitriolic rivalry that plays out across the region with devastating consequences in all these different places. But then, what what you do in in the in the years after the the U.S. invasion in two thousand and three? Is sort of critically reflect on on some of those assumptions that Saudi Arabia was trying to to challenge Iran. Because yeah. looking looking at that, in looking at the Saudi actions in Iraq, we know what the Iranians were doing. But what were the yeah. Saudis doing and, and why? And what what you show is a, a bit of a mess, really. Not yeah. not you presenting a mess, of course, but you uh <laughs> you highlight the 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 tensions the contradictions in in Saudi Saudi engagement which I think yeah. reflects some some serious um what well, some serious issues with with the Saudi state itself particularly under under Abdullah who yeah. himself was a was a rather complicated individual vis a vis Iran. At one point he's he's orchestrating yeah. some form of rapprochement during the nineteen nineties. But then later on he's he's got this staunchly anti-Iranian position calling on the US to cut off the head of the snake. It's yeah. It's fascinating the contradictions.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. Um you know and what I found, you know, because I lived with this research and with the writing of the book for so many years, um, you know, it was so um it was so frustrating. <laughs> um, you know, Abdullah was dead set against on, um, on engaging with Iraq. Um, and I argue that, um, you know, really his understanding of what was happening in Iraq was very simplistic. Um, you know, he saw Iraq's new leaders as just Iranian clients, for want of a better term, you know, Iranian puppets. Yeah. Um, which was not the case. It was that was a simplistic view of what was going on. Um, and, um, and there are all these people, Iraqis, Americans, you know, many of whom I interviewed, um, but then other, um, you know, in the course of my research, it became clear that, um, you know, other Arab leaders, like I think uh, from my research, I understand that Hosni Mubarak, you know, intervened with Abdullah to, ch- to change for us. Again, from my research, um, you know, I've, I've learned that you know, Abdullah's senior, um, foreign policy advisors, um, you know, at that time, Foreign Minister Prince Saud al-Faisal, excuse me, and um, and his intelligence chief, Prince Mukrin, were encouraging him, were of the view that it would be um, beneficial to Saudi Arabia to engage with Iraq. There were all these people who were um, trying to persuade him to adopt a different course, and he wouldn't be persuaded. Um, and I know my interviewees, um, were very frustrated and it, you know, for me, it was also very poignant because, um, you know, I could see, you know, in recreating the story and writing the story, I could see, you know, that this was, um, that this decision was just produced. And this is the, you know, kind of thesis of the book, the argument of the book was producing a self-fulfilling prophecy. It was producing the situation that yeah. Abdullah himself wanted to avoid. Um, you know and i kind of wanted to you know sometimes say please abdullah just you know change course <laughs> <laughs> um but you know i have to say that um even though you know i'm not you know i i i argue that you know i i um you know i i state pretty clearly that i i argue that abdullah's decision not to engage with iraq was um an, an inappropriate decision um but you know i also do feel for him um in the sense that, you know, he had pleaded with the Americans not to invade. Um, yeah. And, of course, the Americans didn't at all listen. Um, and, you know, he felt deeply aggrieved by the Americans um, for producing this situation. Um, and in that respect, you know, I can't blame him.
0: <laughs> sure. Just on, on Abdullah's position then, I mean, why do you think he was staunchly of this view given his given his complex relationship with regard to to iran and i realize this isn't the the thrust of the book but it's something that's always intrigued me and and maybe you can shed a bit of light on it before we go into into the book itself the um
1: so i i believe and um and this is uh this is sort of, this is not the, yeah, just as a caveat, not the, the, focus, of,
0: sure. really yeah, yeah. the
1: focus of the of the book, but sort of what I've pieced together is that, um, from what I've pieced together is that, you know, really from the 19, well, really from the Iranian revolution, there was nobody in the uh, Saudi leadership who was sympathetic to Iran, <laughs> that, that everybody within the, the upper echelons of the Saudi leadership um, feel, felt highly threatened by Iran and from my research um i think um abdullah was um uh, i mean one of my american sources who served as um us ambassador to saudi arabia um the uh you know in the Gulf war period he he told me that abdullah was sort of the most visceral in his reaction against iran that abdullah was sort of one of the most extreme um in his views, on, in his anti-Iranian views within the Saudi leadership, um, so it is quite a surprise that in 1997, Abdullah himself made peace with Iran. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um,
1: but so I think that, um, and and again, in, in from the 2000s, from the period of the 2000s, yeah, kind of Abdullah's real extreme anti-Iran views, and quite frankly, also his pretty extreme anti-Shia views. Um, Become apparent. Um, but from what I um, also from my research, Abdullah was cautious. You know, is one of like the one of the one of the major differences between Abdullah bin and Abdulaziz and um, and uh, Muhammad bin Salman um, is uh, where, you know, uh, Crown Prince Sal uh, and whereas MBS has been, you know, called rash. Mm. Abdullah was inherently cautious and he was in um, his whole view was how do we avoid conflict? Um, And so I think that really played into making peace with Iran in 1997. Um, You know, that effort came in the wake of the bombing um, at um, Hobart Towers. Um, And I think the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia in particular um were extremely concerned about a US Iranian, a US Iran confrontation that would get them caught in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a um sort of a view that making peace um is is beneficial. making peace will diffuse this um these these tensions. Maybe, you know the, the the relationship has gotten too um too tense. We need we we need a change course. While, 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 you know, the United States can act as our security guarantor. Um, and um, and also, I don't have, I mean, I do, I do not have many details. I would love to learn more, but, you know, I'm not sure that I'll be able to. But there was also a power struggle going on in the late 90s um, between um, Abdullah and his brothers um, for succession to King Fahad who at that time was still king, but had suffered a debilitating stroke. Um, and so it was really out of the picture. And there was this power struggle going on at the upper echelons of the uh, Saudi royal family. Um, and from what I understand from some of my Saudi sources, this power struggle was just paramount for Abdullah. Um, and I believe, but I don't, I don't have details, that somehow the, um, the effort to make peace with Iran became sort of a chip. In Abdullah's favor, that this was
0: something that right. was also personally good for him. Sure. So, Kitty, I mean, you've you've just, I think, shed quite a bit of light on on some of the intricacies of of Abdullah, but there's still a, a glaring tension, I think, with with that, and I think I agree with you on on your reading of Abdullah, but and his his position with regard to Iran, but how do we then understand his refusal to engage with Nouri al-Maliki and this is the, the thrust of the book and yeah. the saudi refusal to to seriously engage with iraq post 2003
1: yeah and all I, what I, you know so um and what's ironic <laughs> is that maliki on his first trip abroad as prime minister in july 2006 um Maliki's first trip abroad was to Saudi Arabia, um, and that was a very concerted effort to um, recognize that, you know, it was, it was recognized that Saudi Arabia was particularly um, aggrieved by the 2003 invasion, and so this was an effort um, for Iraq to reach out particularly to Saudi Arabia, um, And I should say that the Americans, this was a big priority for the Americans, but it was also a big priority for the Iraqis. I think for Maliki himself, it's not like the Americans forced um, Maliki by any means to go to Saudi Arabia. Um, He's he's absolutely, he and his advisors absolutely saw the value um, in this. Um, And so uh, Maliki went to Jeddah it was, I I believe. Um, And I think all the atmospherics were really pretty good. And I think that the, um, I think the meeting itself actually went well, um, but within two months, um, literally, I think maybe six weeks later, um, Abdullah started to accuse Maliki of having lied to him. Um, and uh, if you sort of the, the standard narrative um, is that, at least from the Saudi perspective, from the Abdullah' perspective is that Maliki came to um, Saudi Arabia, made a whole bunch of promises to Abdullah, um, which he then failed to carry out, um, and that Abdullah therefore concluded that Maliki was a liar and determined never to deal with Maliki again. Um, that's the and I think quite frankly, again from my research, you know, I I I, I, I do not pretend to know what was going on in Abdullah's head. Sure. But I think from Abdullah's point of view, that's truly what he believed. Um, I, it's It seems like he truly believed that Maliki had lied to him. Um, meanwhile, so I, I do not think that um, Maliki, of course, did meet with Abdullah. I don't think that Maliki made promises to Abdullah. I don't know where Abdullah got the impression that Maliki had made promises to him. You know, I do, um, again, it's not something that, um, I, I discuss it at length in the book. Um, also, I'll only say briefly here, you know, Maliki, Maliki and not, not just Maliki, but you know, there were any number of people in Iraq who wanted, who were antithetical to the, to the new order um, mm. and who set out to undermine the new order and to undermine Maliki. Um, you know, and I, um, many of whom had access to the Saudi leadership. Um, and I'll only say just briefly here, but I get into more detail in the book that, you know, it's possible that somebody um, sort of was manipulating Abdullah Um and um, kind of planted this sort of idea into Abdullah's head that, um, that Maliki had lied to him. I go, and again, I go into much greater detail in the book about that. But what I, but what I do say in the book is that, you know, Maliki was a, con- a convenient scapegoat. Um, yeah. You know, again, there's all this grievance. What, what, I, what I can say is that there was all this grievance um, on, the part of the so- on the part of the Saudis, and really on the, and on the part of Abdullah, you know, much of which was very understandable. Um, and, um, and Nuri al-Maliki was a convenient scapegoat for that grievance.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. So there's this decision then to, to shun Iraq, as you, as you call your, your chapter four to, um, to refuse to engage seriously. Yeah. But then how does, how does it evolve from there? And I'm thinking in particular of the, the the ongoing electoral politics and i'm thinking the um the the uprisings of of 2011 which didn't really take hold in iraq or there's there's all these other protests that are sort of going on on a semi regular basis so how does how does this decision not to engage evolve over time
1: yeah so what i argue in the book is that um uh and as i said uh, you know 2006, really in Maliki's first government, which was 2006-2010, um, really in 2007-2008 period, um, the Iraqis and a whole range of other people, as I was saying, were making a really concerted effort to reach out to Saudi Arabia, to produce um, an opening between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Um, and the Iraqis were doing this in 2007. And then when other Arab states started to engage meaningfully they sought to capitalize on that and again reached out to Saudi Arabia um and um and meanwhile again just to reiterate myself the Americans were putting pressure on the Saudis at the highest levels to 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 open up to to Iraq um and this is from when sorry what
0: sorry what year was this the Americans putting pressure on Does this go back to 2003 uh, or is this so
1: uh I mean George Bush personally intervened with Abdullah and asked him to engage with Maliki's government. Um, and the, so, uh, you know, um, Bush left office, January 2009. Um, so particularly 2007, 2008, and Bush never, from what I understand from my American sources, Bush never stopped, um, you know, um, pressing this issue personally. Right, um, okay. And I know that Dick Cheney, who was of course, was vice president at the time, I think it was in the spring of 2007, Dick Cheney was in the region and saw Abdullah um, and personally asked Abdullah um, to engage. Um, And Abdullah said no. Um, And not only did Abdullah say no, he said, I'm finished, I'm I'm not willing to talk about this anymore. This this subject is closed. Wow. Um, And um, the... uh, and. You know, I mean, this, this seriously got the Americans' attention. Um, but there was, I, I mean, they, they, you know, I think the Americans were trying any angle they could get um, to, to change, to, 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 to try to persuade Abdullah. Um, but, you know, that, that statement that he made to Dick Cheney, and he also made it to others um, from the American establishment. Um, you know, it was just indicative of kind of his mm-hmm. mindset saying sure. that um, I'm not willing to even discuss this any further. Actually, the, from what I understand from my sources, my American sources who speak Arabic, um, you know, your ears are, uh, you, you know, in the two, prior to um, that Abdullah would t- tell the Americans, your ears are closed. You know, I, I keep telling you what um, what I believe is wrong in Iraq. Um, but you're not listening to me, your ears are closed. And so therefore this, this subject is, is, is closed. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and, and, and what I argue the upshot of this is that, um, you know, on a very basic level for Iraq, um, having, you know, having this, this, this non-relationship being isolated by Saudi Arabia, um, you know by being by being shunned by saudi arabia um you know this really um hindered iraq's access to the arab world you know the iraqis at a basic level i believe i argue were trying to you know they nurial maliki and his government were certainly not anti-iranian um but i argue that maliki was was trying to pursue an, ind- an independent course from iran um and you know we're really trying to de- develop the relationship with Saudi Arabia and the other Arab states. Well, you know, first of all, because it was the obvious thing to do. Iraq is a predominantly Arab country. This was just an obvious thing to do to reintegrate yourself into the Arab fold. But mm-hmm. in addition, um, to create um, an Arab counterweight in their relationship with Iran, you know, it, they couldn't um, pursue an independent course from Iran without, you know, um, a positive relationship with their Arab neighbors. And so this hindered um, the Iraqis' ability to balance Iran. But in addition, I argue, um, the Iraqis um, really became very threatened, felt uh, sort of the Iraqi government and certainly Nouri al-Maliki himself um, began to feel deeply threatened by Saudi Arabia um, and to believe that the Saudis were um, working to undermine malachy um and to have malachy replaced which quite frankly um was was a pretty well-based perception (laughs) yeah um as becomes clear in the book
0: sure Um, yeah and you do such a good job of 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 teasing all of that out and it's it's forensically uh forensically detailed and explored the the extent of this distrust and some of these these efforts and perceptions it's really, really fascinating. Really, I should just say, just on a quicker side, it's really rich empirical treaties Thank you. Um, that that I'm sure um, people will will get a great deal out of. Um, Kitty, I'm I'm slightly conscious of time. We've been going a yeah. long time, and I have so many more questions. But um, maybe we can jump a little bit closer to um to to the future. Maybe we'll have to come back and do a follow-up on, on some of yeah. these other themes. But we we've alluded to him briefly, or you alluded to him. Um MBS comes onto yeah. the scene. How do how do things change with a a new crown prince who's perhaps a little less cautious? I think that was the very diplomatic way that you uh, referred to, to Abdullah and his yeah. difference to MBS.
1: Yeah, so um you know, huge differences between Abdullah and Mohammed bin Salman. Um, And so with regard to the Saudi relationship with Iraq, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, Abdullah was dead set against engaging with Iraq and that remained the case until he, basically until he died. Um, But he was really the blocking factor. Um, And when he died, it it sort of created this new opportunity. And I should say, it was really important that both Maliki and Abdullah sort of passed from the scene at about the same time. Um, Because even though um, I do argue that Maliki did in fact, want a positive relationship with Saudi, there was so much baggage there. There was so much baggage with Nuriel Maliki um, that his passing from the scene created an opening and then Abdullah's passing from the scene created an opening. Um, and meanwhile, all the sort of the people subordinate to Abdullah, um, you know, who regarded, um, that it would be useful to engage with Iraq, you know, we're still there. And so, you know, interestingly, I guess, uh, MBS, you know, it took him a couple of years to really start consolidating his, um, uh, his 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 role, um, and he um, and I think that you know Iraq was not at the forefront for him as it was for Abdullah. Um, for Abdullah, Iraq Iraq was um, it was also really personal for Abdullah because um, Iraq had family connections into uh, um, it, uh, into Iraq. You know, at least one of his wives was Iraqi. Um, his mother had been Shammari. Um, which is you know, a tribe that extends, of course, into Iraq, um, and um, and uh, you know, MBS wasn't nearly as focused on Iraq. He was much more focused, of course, on Yemen. Um, but so Iraq was just sort of on the back burner, um, I think, for Saudi Arabia for a number of years. Um, but at least on the positive side, there wasn't this dead. There wasn't this the the, per, the new the, the new person in charge of Saudi policy wasn't dead set against. Um, engaging with Iraq, so there was the ability. There was sort of this um, ability to pursue a, a new course. Um, what's interesting, so by 2017, there really was sort of a new opening um, between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. At the beginning of the, um, at the beginning of 2017, uh, Adel Al Joubert, who at that time was Saudi Foreign Minister. Um, traveled to Baghdad, and this was the first time a Saudi, a senior Saudi official, traveled to Baghdad since um, before the Gulf War, since 1990. And then soon thereafter, um, a number of Iraqi leaders, including Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, traveled to Saudi Arabia, and that was sort of really the genesis of the um, sort of the new relationship. Um, and that and that opening in 2017, um, it's uh, that opening was really brokered. Um, by the United States. So, meanwhile, you know George W. Bush, the Bush administration was really um, pushing the Saudis to engage, um, but so was the Obama administration, and and so was the Trump administration. This was um, a key. This was important for all for successive American administrations, um, and um, and I think from what I understand from my research um, on the American side. Um, Rex Tillerson, who was George W. Bush, excuse me, who was Donald Trump's first Secretary of State, mm-hmm. um, Rex Tillerson, in his first meeting with Adel al Um uh, the, the, officials from the Obama administration had had put a had asked had repeatedly asked Joubert to go to Baghdad to make a gesture to make a really important gesture to Iraq. Um, And, you know, relations between Saudi Arabia and the US were um, pretty dire at the end of the Obama administration and the Saudis, um, this wasn't something that the Saudis would do. But Rex Tillerson, Donald Trump's first Secretary of State, um, uh, in his first meeting with Joubert made the same request, said, you know, we would love for you to go to Iraq. Um, And I think it was two weeks later that Joubert went to Iraq. Um, And, and the relationship is developed from there. You know, it, it fits and starts. I think the Iraqis for a long time, and maybe it, very much still today, you know, have been hoping to see more um, materialized from the relationship. But that was really sort of the genesis of this new relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iraq.
0: That's really interesting. Really, really interesting. And having that contextual background and the, the influence of, of, of the U.S. Is, is useful as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, and
1: I say again from my Iraqi some some of my Iraqi sources, you know, they um they emphasize to me how important the uh role of the United States has been in brokering the relationship.
0: Right, okay. That's that's really interesting to hear. And this there's, there's interesting stuff I think to to pick up on with regard to some of the Saudi outreach programs towards um maybe some of the the beyond the usual suspects i mean this there's, there's, um the the outreach to people like Mukhtar al assadar for instance yeah. is is fascinating and points to a maybe a, an effort to move beyond sect based difference or maybe a desectarianization if you will of of regional politics can you just maybe finally just touch on that a little bit please kitty i mean yeah how does that how important is that uh, those overtures to to someone like um Sadr. How important is it that the Saudis were open to and indeed going out and speaking to, engaging with with Shia groups, albeit Shia nationalist groups perhaps?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's the I think that um you know what's still the jury is still sort of out. Um, as to whether the Saudis are engaging with Iraq as Iraq, or whether the Saudis are engaging with Iraq as a way to um counter Iran. Right. And whereas in the Abdullah period, the the irony is that Maliki was not was not an Iranian client, or certainly not an Iranian puppet, and was an Iraqi nationalist that the Saudis could have worked with. Um but that's not the way Abdullah saw it. And Abdullah effectively in isolating Maliki just pushed Maliki towards iran and the the Saudis you know even if even if they are engaging with Iraq today primarily to push back against Iran, they at the very least recognize that um you know somebody like Seder, um you know may may come from you know a prominent you know uh, one of the main Shia. Um, uh, you know, families of great learning, but that doesn't mean that he's um, beholden to Iran. (laughs) You know, they they, at the very least have a a, a, um, greater understanding of, um, you know, I I wouldn't say that they have a deep understanding maybe of sort of the Shia landscape in Iraq, but they have more of an understanding at the very least of the Shia landscape in Iraq. And that just because you're Shia, you're not pro-Iran, um, and so the jury, you know, I would love to say that the so- that the Saudis have recognized that um, it's useful to br- to build these bridges in and of, a- in, and of its- even in, yeah. in and of it themselves. Sure. But I'm not sure that's the case. Um, the jury is still out. At the very least, it's it's a much more positive development <laughs> than it was, you know, 15 years ago.
0: Sure. Well, I think ending on a positive note is about all we could have asked for. Yeah. From this. <laughs> Aside from the fact that you have this absolutely wonderful book that is that is almost out, um, <laughs> out due out in the UK on the thirtieth of September, if that's correct. Yes. And then in the US, early twenty twenty two.
1: Yeah, January first.
0: January first. Excellent. What a good way to start the new year. new year. Yeah. So, Kitty, thank you so much for your time today. There really is so much more that we could have discussed, but I hope we get a chance to. Uh, to pick up on these other themes in due course at, at some point in the in the not-too-distant future. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate you showcasing the book.
0: A huge thanks to Kitty for her time today. You can find her on Twitter at Kitty S. Harvey. That's at Kitty S. Harvey. And uh, you can check out her book, which is now out in the UK coming out in the US in early 2022. A huge thank you to you for listening, as always. Please do like, comment, subscribe, share, do all the things that one might normally do or be requested to do with this type of thing. As always, until next time.